Our passage today is from the book of Exodus. It is uh, chapter 32. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. I encourage you to open up the Bibles we provide for you in the rows. Uh, those of you at home, I encourage you to uh, grab the Bible that you have around you as well and open it up to Exodus 32. Let us hear the Word of God. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 8. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of, of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in, the, in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? May God bless the reading of his word and may God show his favor upon our coming under his word today. Last week, we began a sermon series, which we're calling Unwanted God. The idea is that we're looking at five different places in the Bible where God's own people. Uh, took issue with some aspect of who God is, some aspect of his nature. And they said, we don't really want this aspect of who God is. They were taking issue with God. Well, today we're going to focus in on taking issue with God's transcendence. You might be asking, how can I take issue with God's transcendence if I don't even know what that means? Well, it turns out that one does not need to know the meaning of the concept in order to violate its value. But nonetheless, we will explore it today. Today, what we're going to do, uh, we're going to look at the story. And by the way, we've been in this story before. And we've referenced it a good number of times. It's one of those foundational stories for the people of God. And it is illustrative of what we're talking about in this season so we'll take a look at the story. Then we're going to talk a little bit about idols and idolatry. Idolatry then and now. And finally, we're going to finish up with uh, God's transcendence. God's transcendence and its implications. So first to the story. The story. You know, the Bible describes that the people of God were in Egypt for 430 years. And there's a wonderful discussion we could have around the archaeology behind that and the uh, 
some of the challenges and insights and information that we have from there. But for today, we'll simply leave it at what the Bible describes as 430 years in Egypt. When the people of God, when the Hebrews arrived in Egypt, they were uh, um, welcomed as guests. The sons of Jacob uh, make their way down. The, uh, the people of God, the Hebrews, find themselves in Egypt as guests. But over those 430 years, um, there's a transition that takes place. And they started as guests, but they end up uh, as oppressed slaves. And so they call out to God, God, help us, help us. And God sends Moses, this Hebrew-born, Pharaoh-raised um, uh, person. He, he taps Moses and goes, I'm going to send you, and you're going to bring these people out. I'm going to use you to lead my people out of bondage, to lead them out of Egypt. And again, so much around that story we could take a look at. But we do find that Moses goes before Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh resisted. And so we have those stories of those plagues that God provided, that God in His power, and uh, um, He brings His power to be, and there's these uh, plagues that come in uh, to being that uh, eventually Pharaoh relents and allows the people to go, only to chase them. And now the people of God are up against the Red Sea, and, and Pharaoh's army is coming upon them, and God provides a way. God in his power, provides a way through the Red Sea. And then finally, they make their way to the bottom of Mount Sinai, the bottom of Mount Horeb, uh, names of the same mountain. As they're at this place, we find in the book of Exodus that Moses ends up going up and down the mountain. God calls Moses forward. God calls Moses and Aaron. God calls Moses sometimes and some of the other leaders. He tells the people to stay at the bottom, but there's this moving up and down the mountain. And, and then we get to chapter 24, verse 18, and it reads that, uh, and Moses stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And you've heard us say it before that that can be a term for some considerable time, that Moses stays up on top of the mountain with God for some considerable time. And so during that time, the people turn to Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. And they have two rejections that they share with him. And we'll look first at the lesser, even though it comes later. We'll look at the lesser, and then we'll look at the greater rejection. The first rejection is this, the lesser rejection. They say, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is not a rejection of the quality of leadership that Moses was providing. There were other times where they took issue with the way he was leading, but this is an, uh, an issue of his availability. We don't have a leader. We are in a predicament. He's been away for so long that, that we are not comfortable without his presence with us. And so they reject him. We might think of a, a, a if you're at a restaurant and 
you're looking to uh, leave the restaurant. You've had this wonderful meal, and, and your waiter has served you uh, so well during that meal, and you've had this great interaction with them, but then your waiter is nowhere to be found. And you want to leave. You want to go. You, you don't just want to stay at your table. And so you look around. It's not like you're unhappy with your waiter. They did a great job over the meal. But, but right now, you just want to communicate, I need the bill. And so you call out to anybody else around and you go, excuse me, can you help me? And so the people of God at the bottom of this mountain go, we're rejecting Moses at this point because he's just not available. And so they turn to Aaron. And now we come across the greater rejection. Turns out that they rejected God, but maybe not in the way that we might think. They, um, they come to Aaron, they say, make us gods who shall go before us. And so Aaron tells him, give me, give me the gold from your earrings. And he, they give him all the gold and he collects it and he melts it down. And, and it could have been that there was actually a, a, someone uh, would have carved a wooden piece and they melted the, the gold and put, put all that over it. Or they, he just fashioned it, uh, uh, a calf out of the gold itself. But he fashions this calf. And he gives it to them. And then the people, it says they, that's, whether it's some contingent or uh, what size of the group, we don't know. But this contingent, they, whoever they are, they say to the rest of the people, the rest of Israel, they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, you may be noticing that the plural is being used here, gods. These are your gods. Not this is your God, but these are your gods. And it seems, according to uh, commentators, scholars on, uh, on such things, that, that this is a device that the author is using in order to distinguish between the God of the Bible, between Yahweh and this idol, this fashion thing. And so the distinction being made, whenever they're talking about the idol or, or this, uh, this fashioned God, that um, the author talks about it in the plural, helping to make the distinction. They grab hold of the idea of a young bull, which, by the way, they would have brought that idea with them from Egypt, and that a young bull would be full of strength and vitality. And if they're going to move forward, let's have an idol, let's have this image of, uh, of something that's strong and, and full of vitality. In other words, you can bring the oppressed people out of Egypt, but you can't get Egypt out of the oppressed people. They're used to this. This is what they know. And so Aaron builds an altar and proclaims a feast for the next day. This is the kind of stuff that a high priest would, a priest would do in response to the presence of this idol. And it tells us in Scripture that, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You gotta love translators, right? And, and I'm not a Bible translator, so I'm dependent upon Bible translators. And, and um, so I, I read one translation that said that they rose up to have fun. All right, that's kind of a weird word to see at this point. Um, we could turn to the NIV, and they have, and uh, they rose up and indulged in revelry, which means that they weren't Presbyterians. Um, <laughs> because if, if, if the passage had said, and they folded their arms and frowned, oh, they could have been Presbyterians. Or, or if it said, and they rose up and had donuts. Yes, yes, it's us. 
how would you like your worst day to be captured in Scripture? How would you like your worst day to be told and retold? I've mentioned before I'm a fan of the Premier League, right? I like uh, uh, soccer or what the rest of the world calls football, and I enjoy watching games uh, or paying attention at least to the table of where the different teams are uh, in their matches and in the season. And so yesterday there was this game between Manchester United and Brentford. And if, and if you're not much of a, a person who's paying attention, that, those are, that means absolutely nothing to you. So let me give you a little bit of context. Manchester United has the highest payroll of all the teams in the Premier League uh, over in Britain, which means that uh, in U.S. dollars, they spend on their team, all the salaries combined, $245 million. $245 million, all their salaries together. Uh, Brentford... They have the lowest uh, salary, uh, combined salary, only, uh, and again, in U.S. dollars, only $20 million, so 12 times less. $20 million going against $245 million. Brentford won yesterday four to nil. Four to nil. How would you like to have your worst day being televised all over the planet? And here, the worst day of these Hebrews is being told in Scripture over and over and over, from generation to generation to generation, it leaves you scratching your head. Why would they do this? Why would they choose an idol over the God who had brought them out, who had provided the plagues, who, who had heard their call, provided the plagues, who had caused it to be that, that Pharaoh would let them go, who had, had opened the way through the Red Sea? Why would they choose to do this? Well, let's talk a little bit about idols and idolatry then. And here, thankful for the work that Douglas Stewart has done in his commentary. He has an excursion in part of his commentary on the book of Exodus that, that investigates idols more. It turns out idolatry was the norm. Idolatry was what people knew in the community. It was other cultures had idols. There was a plurality of gods and in that gods, they would have different idols to represent different gods. I know we've taught this before in this room, that, that it's not that the idol itself was the god, but the idol was a portal to God, a, a, a way of connecting with the, the, the god, um, whoever that god might be. And it was not uncommon for people to have a personal god, a family god, and a national god. A personal god, a family god, and a national god. And they could have idols for each of the gods that they would have in their lives. And in fact, the idols would have value in their family. And it would even instruct that, you know, upon the death of the head of the household, that the, the idols would be bequeathed to a, a, a certain child, had value to them. And so it could even be that as the Hebrews would fashion this, this, um, this idol, that they're not necessarily, in their minds, that they're not rejecting God. That they're still giving a, a tilt of the hat to Yahweh, the God who did bring them up out of Egypt. They're just rejecting, as it turns out, God's transcendence. That they want to have a portal. Now, why would someone want to have a portal? Why would someone want to have an idol for their God? Well, idols had their advantages. And real quickly, we can describe four of those advantages. By the way, all four of them, and we'll talk a little bit about it, all four of them challenge God's transcendence, which we'll talk about in a minute. One of the advantages of having an idol is that it, 
it, it concretized God. It made God concrete. It, 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 it allowed there to be something you could hold in your hands. And you could see it. You could put it on a wall. You could put it in a niche. You, you knew where it was. It guaranteed God's presence. You didn't have to wonder where the pillar of fire was or, or, or if the pillar of smoke was going to be around. It just, here it is. In the immortal words of Carol King and James Taylor, winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll come running. You've got a friend. There, the idol guarantees. It's concretized. God concretized. I have access. A second advantage would be that it's mechanistic, that, that the whole idea of an idol was that if you fed the idol, if you brought things to the portal, if you, if you brought sacrifices to the portal, that then you could anticipate that that God, you're trying to alert that God to come and do the thing that that God does in a kind of a mechanistic way. I'll do this, quid pro quo, I'll scratch your back, God, if you scratch my back. Idols brought the idea that God was manageable. Manageable. In fact, in the surrounding cultures, um, gods would be gods of different things. God of fertility. God, God that you could trust for the harvest and you could bring in a focus that, that you would come to that idol and feed it and then this would just apply to this one area. What was so different about the Hebrews and the Hebrew God was that God had this divine covenant that included all of life. It wasn't just manageable, compartmentalized into this one area, but God was saying, listen, I want to define all of your life, your, your community, and how you gather together, and how you approach me, and what you live for, what your mission in this world is all about. And when you shrunk a God down into an idol and, and you had access, not only was it concrete and mechanistic and manageable, but it was convenient. Because you can make a number of these little images and you could place them in different places. Even Israel would later have this issue. The northern kingdom of, of Israel would have this issue of, of designating other places so they wouldn't have to go into the southern kingdom of Judah to go to Jerusalem. They could visit the images, the idols that they had in different places. And this, so it makes God convenient. You could have shrines all over the place. Kind of like Starbucks. They could go kind of like 7-Eleven on every corner. It's kind of like a Casey's without the pizza. And it turns out that all four of these quote-unquote advantages of having an idol are rejections of God's transcendence. So what do we mean by transcendence? Isaiah provides a, a wonderful little um, section that uh, gives a pretty good description of God's transcendence. This comes from Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9. 55, 8 through 9. He says, quoting God, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is other. God is other. God's transcendence is means that God is greater, beyond, it's different, it's, it's um, God is above. Now, we want to make sure that we underscore that God is not just transcendent, God is not just greater, but God, they, the term we use is God is imminent, 
Even in a song we sung, we said, the whole earth is full of your glory. God brings God's presence in our midst. Uh, That line in Scripture in John's Gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. God is imminent. His transcendence does not preclude his imminence. And yet we need to know that God is not just the God that we can manage or that we can make concrete or that that we are somehow kind of equal to or that's just kind of our uh, our personal God. And so we talk about God's transcendence in terms of some of the things of his nature. God is uh, God's greatness. It's part of his transcendence, God's power, God's knowledge, God's goodness, God's holiness, even God's love. That these are, are larger, different, they're greater. Kierkegaard um, has a, a piece where he talks about the transcendence of God. And one of the things he says is that it's a qualitative distinction, that it's not just that it's more. It's not just like we could take all of the love of all of the people and add it together and that would equal God's love. But that God is substantially, uh, essentially different. In other words, God cannot be reduced. God cannot be reduced. God is transcendent. You know, um, a lot of you know that uh, my degree from UCLA is in engineering. And I worked four years as an engineer. And, uh, but there are times when, when people will say to me, um, oh, you're such an engineer. Oh, you're, you're just a typical engineer. And by the way, I love engineers. And I love the fruit of engineering. But there's something about the phrase that seems to be reductionistic. If you're a nurse and they just say, oh, what a typical nurse. Or if you're a teacher and they say, oh, what a typical teacher. And there seems to be this kind of, I'm going to reduce you down to this stereotypical image and I'm going to limit you by that. And somehow I have a little bit of control over you because I have declared who you are. And so people fashion these idols and they say, here, I have access to you now. I have a way to feed you. I challenge, I reject your transcendence. Now, when we get to the New Testament, there seems to be this addition, uh, kind of a broadening of the idea of idolatry. It's not like this isn't in the Old Testament, but it becomes a little bit more full in the New Testament. And by the way, in New Testament times, they still had many little idols, little statues as well. But when we read in Colossians 3, 5, one of the things we find out about idolatry is this line by Paul. He says to uh, Christians, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he goes through this list of things that are not of God. And then he, at the very end of it, he puts it this way, and covetousness, put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. And the idea that, that there can be these values or, or these priorities that we have in our life that, that we put in front of God, that, that we would say in this example here that, uh, you know, my ability to desire um, something that someone else has, that that can become idolatry, that I'm putting that ahead of who God is. I, wanna, I want what they have. 
this kind of idolatry says that God is important, but not as important as fill in the blank. God, you're important, but you're not as important as blank. God, you're in charge, just not in this part of my life. God, you know far more than everybody else, but in this area, I think I know more. And we create an idol. So today is kind of a combination of both what, what we describe from the Old Testament reference, that the, uh, the hard idols, and, and then also these more idea idols, that the hard idols today would be like a person who goes, you know, um, uh, the church is where I meet with God. Now, the rest of the week, I'm kind of on my own. I kind of do my own thing. And when I go to church, oh, you better not swear in church, you know, because like it's a different place. Like it's our way we control God. It's our access point. It's our portal. And so we take the God who is the God over every place and at all times, and we say, God, you're really confined to when I'm in church. Otherwise, the rest of the world is mine. And it's not unlike fashioning an idol, that the church building itself becomes that idol for us. Not just an object, it can be an event. We can say, like, like a particular retreat, and we, we go, God, God just works so good through this retreat. By the way, this is not a statement against retreats. But there can be times when we go, you know, God works differently at this retreat, and I only go to this retreat and expect God to work this way when I'm at that retreat. And we take God, who's transcendent over all time and space, but we say we limit him to when we're on that retreat. When God, it could be I'm on my front lawn with a neighbor, God is just as much God of that moment and can work at that time in that place through me, through my neighbor, as he can in any retreat. But we limit him. Sometimes we do it through a ritual. If I pray a certain way, if I, if I do this this way, and we want to become repetitive, like we can limit God to those moments. But we can also expand it to the priorities and values. And so today, idols include things like our identity. God, I love you, but I'm going to be in charge of my identity. God, I, I, I'm all for you, and you have wisdom, except when it comes to my wealth and what I want to do with my money. God, you can have everything except for my entertainment, and that's when I'm in charge. I want to be entertained the way I want to be entertained. God, I recognize that you're transcendent except over my vacation or my retirement or my calendar or my family or my children or my phone or my Twitter, Facebook, TikTok account. God, you can be in charge of everything except my career. And we limit God. We challenge his transcendence. God, you are in charge except in this area. Idolatry. In essence, what we do is we, we reduce God so we can be in control. I reject your sovereignty, your goodness, and wisdom in this part of my life. What if we want to flip that? What if we don't want to have the same story that the Hebrews had at the bottom of Mount Sinai? What if we wanted our story to be different? What if we wanted to respond to God's transcendence in a way that's appropriate and God-honoring? So let's take a few moments and talk about embracing God's transcendence. God's transcendence. I was recently at an event where there was this really tall person. Really tall person. And um, I began to watch as other people were walking by this really tall person. 
and they were all seeming to respond to it right in front of the tall person, like kind of almost gawking at how tall it is. There was even this one guy who was much taller than me who turned to this tall person and goes, I don't have to look up to too many people. I felt for this tall person. What could he do about his tallness? It's just who he is. Well, it just turns out that God is transcendent. It's who God is. Anything we try to do to, to clip him or to, to shrink him or to concretize him or to manage him will never work because God is the transcendent God. He cannot help it. He has transcendent power, transcendent greatness, transcendent knowledge, transcendent goodness, transcendent holiness, transcendent love. So if we wanted to have a different story, what could be our posture to respond appropriately to God's transcendence? Let me throw out a quick short list. The first one, we could have a humble uh, posture. We have a humble posture because we realize that there is something greater than humans, that God himself is greater than humans, that God... um, ultimately is not just our buddy, our pal, our homie, our BFF. And so we have appropriate smallness before God. He will always be God. And we will always be human. Even when Jesus comes back and all things are made new and we move from one degree of glory to another, we will still be human. And God will still be God. Our posture for all of eternity, beginning today, can be a posture of humility. The second thing would be that we would be a a dependent posture, a dependent posture. Theologians talk about God being unknowable, that, that we only know about God because God chooses to reveal God's self. And even what God reveals is is we can only understand it within the degree of limits of our human understanding. I I picture an onion, and and that as you peel away the onion, and we get to know more about God, that that onion just keeps, like it's an infinite onion, and God reveals more of himself and more of himself. And every time we learn something, we can never master knowing God. We might come and say, well, you know, I've I've studied Scripture, and I I really can say it this way, and I have these understanding of the principles of the Bible, but we can't master knowing God. We are dependent upon God and God revealing himself to us. Not only is God unknowable, but they talk about God being unapproachable, that we can't approach God on our own. We are dependent upon God making the way possible for us to approach him, that God is the one who establishes the fellowship with us, that opens the door for us to experience salvation uh, in all of eternity with him. So our posture in our life is one of humility. It's a dependent posture. God, I, I am dependent upon you. I don't master you. I'm not in charge of you. I'm dependent upon you, even for the relationship I have with you. The third one would be worshipful, a worshipful posture. God is not just bigger, God is best. And so everywhere we go, we, we worship. It's a worship posture. God, you are, 
you are all powerful, you are all knowing, you are all wise, you are all loving, you are all good. No matter where I am, no matter what time it is, my life will be a life full of worship of you. It's the worship posture. I worship you, God. I'm writing out my checks. God, I worship you as I write out my checks. God, I'm watching. I'm being entertained. I worship you as I experience it. God, when I think about my comfort, I surrender my comfort to you because I worship you, the transcendent God. And finally, the last one put on this list for today anyways is that it's an open posture, an open posture. That means that we're open to however God will work in our midst. We don't say, God, you have to work this way. It's like Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. God, I'm open to whatever you want to do in this world, whatever you want to do in my life. God's works are not limited to our understandings. Even now, somebody could stand up and go, I have a prophecy from God because the Holy Spirit had so tweaked their heart, had so tweaked their mind. By the way, when I was preparing this line, I was wondering if it was going to happen. That would be so interesting, wouldn't it? Wait, we're Presbyterian. But we're always open. We're open to God's timing. We're open to God's teaching. So what will be the story they tell of us? What will be the story that we're known by? Those Hebrews at the bottom of the mountain, and they rejected God, they, they had an idol. They were still worshiping Yahweh, in their, maybe in their minds, but, but they had rejected his transcendence and instead tried to capture him in an idol. What will be the story they tell of us? May the story of our lives, may the story of our ministry in this world be one of humility before God, dependence upon God, worship of God and openness to all of God's works in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are the God who is indeed worthy, that you are the transcendent one, that as the transcendent one, you created this universe and gave life to us that we would be able to experience a relationship with you at your mercy through your provision. And we acknowledge that you are greater. That you are other. That you are all-knowing and all-wise and all-good. And so, God, may you find in each one of us the response that is appropriate to who you are. God, we thank you, and we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.